Okay, so um, Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. And the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In his anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Well, thank you very much, Paul, and uh, good morning, everybody. Well, I hope you've uh, got that passage in front of you, and um, a simple outline, and I'm going to pray and ask for God's help as we turn back to his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the words of Jesus. Thank you for their truth and their goodness to us. And we pray now for your help that we will leave this morning different people to how we came in, having heard these words, believe them, and taken them to heart. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to try and convince you this morning of uh, what Joe said to us right at the very beginning, if you uh, remember. He said that the message of Jesus is good. I want to convince you that the message of Jesus Christ that we read in the Bible is good as well as being true. In, very, in fact, very good, it is beautiful. Of course, it does matter that what we believe about Jesus is true. Christianity is not a philosophy or a set of religious ideas or a moral code, but it's about something that actually happened in the real world. It fits into the way this universe works. It makes sense. It is true in that sense. It matters that Jesus really did come into the world as a man, that he really did say the things that we read in the Bible, that he really did die on the cross and rise again and was seen by many people. It matters that the message of Jesus is true. 
But I want to suggest to you that it's not enough to come to terms with the truth of the message of Jesus. If we are to understand Jesus at all, we must see that he brings something that is better than true. He brings something that is truly good. Something that is good for us, both now and in eternity, and something that is good for our world. And I think this is especially important to believe and to remember when voices in our society are insisting that religion in general, and Christianity in particular, is bad for us. That we as a society would be better off without biblical Christianity, that it's somehow destructive to our world. We need to see again just how good the message of Jesus is. And there's hardly a better place in all the teaching of Jesus to see it than the passage that we just read together. What we're going to do now is we're going to pay close attention to these words of Jesus in Matthew's gospel that we've got in front of us. And as we do that, we're going to see that Jesus has brought something completely new into our world. Something that has never been experienced before. Something so powerful and beautiful and original, that it can actually change you this morning from the inside out. And from there, it can actually change our world. What is this thing I'm talking about? In a word, forgiveness. And if we grasp hold of the forgiveness that Jesus brings us this morning, not just with our minds, but with our very beings, we can walk out of this building different to how we walked in. If we put this teaching into practice, our church will be different. If we proclaim it, our world will be different. And most of all, if we receive it, our eternity will be different. And we're going to see a very simple truth that you'll see on the outline, that Jesus' people forgive because they have been forgiven. Jesus' people forgive because they have been forgiven. Firstly, Jesus' people forgive in verses 21 and 22. We begin with a question, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Now, Peter's question doesn't come out of the blue, but is a follow-up question to the previous section, 15 to 20, And if you just glance back there, you'll see that Jesus has been teaching his disciples how to handle things in church when somebody sins against you. And we saw last week that Jesus expects the church to follow a kind of a process when someone doesn't repent of their sin. A process of warnings, verse 15. Second chances, verse 16. And then ultimately broken fellowship, verse 17, all with the hope and intention of reconciliation, but without the guarantee of it. So that's the teaching that Peter has just heard. And in the meantime, Peter has been scratching his head and he's come up with a bit of a problem. And you have to love Peter, don't you? Because so often in the gospel accounts, he is the guy at the back of the class who's not afraid to stick his hand up and ask the slightly stupid question that the rest of us are actually thinking but are too scared to ask. He's been thinking, okay, Jesus, I get all that, but what if he or she does repent and I forgive them and they do it again? And knowing this person I'm thinking of, they probably will do it again and I forgive them again and they do it again. How long can we keep this up? 
Well, religious leaders of the day had pondered that very question and had capped it at three. Sort of three strikes and you're out, like in baseball. And so Peter's suggestion of seven is actually really quite radical. You can imagine him coming to Jesus with a bit of a kind of a, you know, self-satisfied star pupil kind of grin. I know, Jesus, you're quite radical about these things, so the rabbis say three. Well, why don't we double it and add one? So we keep on forgiving and forgiving and forgiving seven times. Well, look at Jesus' answer in verse 22. I tell you not seven times, but 77. Now, Jesus is not just replacing Peter's number with a bigger number. You know, remember the children's song, anything you can do, I can do better? He's not doing that. He's actually offering a new way of thinking that will blow Peter's mind. And by the end of our morning, I hope it has blown our minds as well. And to see it, we actually need to take a look back, right back to the beginning of the Bible, and the only other place in the Bible where that phrase 77 times occurs. It is just after the first man and woman have rebelled against God, and the world, as the Bible tells a story, has become broken and dark. We don't need much backstory, but just listen to this guy Lamech. Just a few generations from Adam and Eve in Genesis 4. It's on the screen. Lamech said to his wives, Lamech was the first polygamist, by the way, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. I think of Lamech as the first rap artist in history. Here he is, kind of boasting in this kind of violent poetry how he's going to treat people who hurt him. The word wounded in the original is, is, is quite mild. It's just like a scratch or a bruise. And the young man is just a child. And in response, he's killed him. And there at the end of his little song, he uses that number 77 as a kind of poetic symbol for infinity. He says... This is my philosophy of life. If a child so much as scratches me, I will never, ever forgive. I will pursue vengeance to the end of the world. I will never forgive. I will hurt those who hurt me. That is Lamech's philosophy. Lamech's philosophy is a philosophy of vengeance. And if you think about it, Lamech's philosophy is alive and well in our world, isn't it? As the Bible story unfolds and as the human world matures, you begin to see it everywhere. Whether it's two people in a relationship, passively, aggressively, paying each other back for little hurts, we all do this, don't we? Keep a little record of wrongs and make sure that we remember and we kind of pay that little insult back. Or whether it's the old policy of mutually assured destruction that some of us grew up with in the Cold War. Two nuclear powers kind of facing each other off. If you destroy us, we'll destroy you. Or you see it in the media frenzy around a fallen celebrity. It happens most weeks now, doesn't it? Someone's accused of something and, and we set out to destroy that person forever. Or the social media pylon when somebody just tweet something that clashes with the sort of liberal orthodoxy of the day. 
Or perhaps you see it in metaphysical garb of karma and payback. Now, Lamech's philosophy is alive and well. Vengeance is alive and well in our world. In fact, just think about uh, how common a theme this is in the storylines of films and literature. You might want to just think back to films you've seen in the last few months and, and try and find a film where vengeance is not part of the story. I'm quite interested in children's literature. I was just thinking about this as a great theme of children's literature. Just think of Roald Dahl, for example. I think all of Roald Dahl's books are about vengeance. I think of all the horrid things that happen to those horrid children in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. They all get their comeuppance, don't they? Mrs. Trunchbull in Matilda gets her comeuppance. Or the horrible ants getting squashed by that giant peach. Because there is something delicious about seeing horrid people get what they deserve. Lamech's philosophy is alive and well. And so come back to Jesus' words to Peter, where he says, you mustn't forgive seven times, but 77 times. This is a deliberate reference back to Genesis 4. And he is clearly not just putting a a cap on the number and say, when you get to 78, that'll do. But he's actually bringing a brand new way of thinking into the world. He is talking, notice in verse 23, about the kingdom of God. He's saying, we live in the world of Lamech, where vengeance is the normal way of life, where payback is natural. But let me tell you about the kingdom of God. Here is a new way of looking at things. Here is something new, something powerful, something beautiful that is coming into the world with Jesus. It's going to create a new kind of person, a new community of people who, if you glance down at verse 35, can actually forgive from the heart. Which means, if you're part of this church, the obvious question is, how are we doing at this? How are we doing at forgiving those who sin against us? See, if you think about it, forgiving someone who has genuinely hurt you is a very hard thing to do. A very hard thing to do. Um, as Joe said, the children are studying this same passage. And in Becky's teaching notes for the children's groups, which I always read, they're always very helpful, she included the true story of Corrie ten Boom, the Dutch Christian watchmaker, who famously harboured uh, harbored a dozen, dozens of Jews from the Nazis during the Holocaust in World War II. And Corrie ten Boom herself was sent to a concentration camp as a result with her sister Betsy. They were treated appallingly, and Betsy, her sister, died at the hands of a particular Nazi guard, while Corrie ten Boom herself survived. Well, she went on to write about this, and after the war, Corrie ten Boom came face to face with the very guard who had been responsible for her sister's death. In the meantime, he had become a Christian, and he asked Corrie ten Boom for forgiveness. Just listen to how she recalls that moment. And I stood there, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, 
but it seemed to me hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. But I stood there with a coldness clutching my heart. Now, not many of us will face such extreme circumstances as that. And yet some of us in this room do know what it means to be deeply hurt by others. In marriage. In childhood. Maybe by your own children. Through rejection and abuse and betrayal. Things have been done to you that have gone deep. Things have made you feel broken and damaged and shamed and crushed and abused and betrayed. And what do you do with that pain? What do you do with the anger, with the hurt, with the outrage? Well, it seems to me we have two choices. The first is the way that comes most naturally to us, which is the way of Lamech. What you do with that pain is you seek to give it back to the person who has hurt you. Even if you're never actually able to do that, you can do it in your mind, can't you? You know, the, the rerun conversations that you have, you always get the upper hand in those conversations, don't you? Have you ever had a rerun of a conversation where you kind of come off more badly than the other person? No, of course. In the fantasy of your conversations in your head, you take vengeance. Or maybe you play with the pain the way you might pick a scab. Unable to let it go, feeding it, granting yourself the self-pity it allows. Or maybe you just bottle it up and you bottle it up and it is festered and it's hardened in this long, slow-burning bitterness. But I want to suggest that Jesus here is teaching us another way. A way that is infinitely better. He's teaching his disciples that they can actually become forgiving people even for the greatest of hurts imaginable. He's going to teach them that there is a transforming power that can change their perspective completely from within, from the heart. And we find it in this little story he tells in 23 to 35. Jesus' people forgive others because they themselves have been forgiven. Well, the story that follows is not very complicated. But through this story, Jesus actually takes us to the very heart of what he has come to do. And I think we learn three things about forgiveness that will appear on the screen, each for the bullet points you'll see on the sheet. The first is that at its heart, forgiveness involves cancelling a debt. Look at verse 23 with me. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. You get the idea? It's the end of the financial year. And the king in Jesus' story decides it's time to settle his accounts and balance his books. And so he starts to call in his servants, who I think are kind of civil servants who've been working for him. And the first one comes in, and he has amassed a debt of astronomical proportions. 
Now, what does 10,000 talents mean in today's money? Well, I'll tell you, it means 6,000 denarii makes one talent. Doesn't really help us, does it? But if you look across at 20 verse 2, another parable Jesus tells, he tells us there that one denarii is what a typical laborer earns in a day. And so if one talent is 6,000 denarii, then I reckon it would take you about 20 years' work to earn a single talent. So in a typical lifetime, you could earn two talents. And so 10,000 talents is 5,000 lifetimes of work. Which is why we're told in verse 24, he was not able to pay. This is a debt of such enormous magnitude, it is unpayable. Somehow this man has amassed such a shattering obligation that his very life and everything he has is now forfeit to the king. And so what would you do in such a situation? Well, he does the only thing he possibly can do. Verse 26, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will repay back everything. And amazingly, the king not only grants him the patience he asked for, but in an act of extraordinary generosity, he cancels the debt. Verse 27, the servant's master took pity on him, cancelled the debt, and let him go. Can you imagine the sense of relief? That crushing burden removed in an instant? How joyfully you would walk out of there. How quickly you would run and share the news with your family that they were not going to be sold into slavery after all. How well you would sleep that night. You've been given a totally fresh start. And so here's the first lesson from the parable. There's lots we could say about forgiveness, but at its heart... It is an act of generosity in which a great debt is cancelled. That's the first thing. An obligation is waived. You see, when someone does something wrong, whether against another person or against God, that wrongdoing actually creates an obligation. It creates a debt. Something that can rightfully be demanded from the one who is wronged. Which is why I think we find vengeance comes so naturally. And because there is actually something right about it. Not the disproportionate gangster vengeance of Lamech, but the proportionate eye-for-an-eye vengeance that you see elsewhere in the Old Testament where wrongs are put right. And therefore, the act of forgiveness is a gracious decision not to call in the debt that you have a right to call in. Not to insist on the payment of what is due to forego the right of vindication. Which tells you, doesn't it, why forgiveness is so hard. Because it means if I forgive you, I have to bear that cost myself. Like the king who must absorb this financial loss. I must absorb the pain you have caused me. I must give up the opportunity to pay back the hurt you have caused me. And in reply to Peter's question, I must do it again and again. That's the first lesson then from this 
story Jesus tells, forgiveness at its heart involves cancelling a debt. The second thing we learn is that forgiveness is necessary to enter the kingdom of God. The problem with the heading that our modern Bible publishers have given the story, the parable of the unmerciful servant, is that it sounds like we're listening to a kind of morality tale, doesn't it? As if here is a story of a bad man who comes to a nasty end, don't be like him. Make sure you try really hard to be a forgiving person. But look at verse 23 again, and notice Jesus' opening line, the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus is giving us a way of understanding the kingdom of heaven in contrast to the kingdom of Lamech. And it's not so much the two servants who are the primary characters, but it's the king who is the primary character, who in verse 35, Jesus explicitly associates with God in heaven. And so I think what Peter must learn from the story and what we must learn is that we can never enter that kingdom unless we have had an astronomical debt of sin cancelled by God. And so before we can learn to forgive others, there is a very deep and uncomfortable lesson we need to hear about ourselves. We need to learn that we are in debt to God. Well, how big is that debt? Well, think again about that figure of 10,000 talents. It is actually an astronomical, almost comical amount of money. The Jewish historian Josephus uh, tells us that in, that in the year that he was writing, the amassed taxes paid in Palestine uh, to Rome was, was less than 1,000 talents. So this is more money than was circulating in the economy at the time. Something I hadn't really twigged this week was that actually 10,000 is the, the biggest number in Greek at the time as well. And so Jesus is giving us this infinite debt to think about. And he's telling us that is the crushing debt that we owe to God. How can that be? How can it be the case that we owe God so much? Well, because he is the perfect, holy, infinite creator. And we have, the Bible tells us, treated him as less than God. We've harmed his world. We've harmed his fellow image bearers. We failed to love him and serve him as he deserves to be loved and served. And in treating the infinitely glorious king of the universe in this way, we've wrapped up an infinite debt of sin that 5,000 lifetimes will never pay off. And so no religious works can scratch the surface of this. And until we feel the weight of that debt, we will never make sense of Jesus or what he came into the world to do. See, Peter has not yet grasped it, but he will grasp it in time. In 2028, Jesus will say explicitly that he has come into the world to pay a ransom for many. 
And as we read on in Matthew's gospel, we're going to see that he will be crucified on the cross to do exactly that. The Son of God will absorb on the cross in his death the pain and the cost of our enormous debt to God. This is how God settles our accounts so we can enter the kingdom. Because like the man in the parable, we could never do it ourselves. But what if we don't quite believe this? What if we prefer to think of ourselves as not quite that bad? That, yeah, of course, there are some people in the world who have these terrible debts to God. There are terrorists and murderers and rapists and all those kind of people. But, but not me. I mean, I'm not that bad that I have an infinite debt to pay back. And we might just be tempted to think, well, maybe God will have a go at balancing the books somehow because he'll look at the good things I've done and he'll look at the bad things I've done and somehow the good things and the bad things I haven't done will kind of outweigh them at the end. And maybe some of us this morning will think like that. Well, the Bible gives us a very simple answer. If you doubt the extent of your debt to God, look at the cross of Christ where that debt was paid. Emma and I have got into watching films about rock climbing recently. Not because we like rock climbing, actually we don't like rock climbing at all, but I think we do like just sitting on our sofa and watching other people in peril. It's quite entertaining. And also there's nothing else on TV, is there? So we've got into films about rock climbing. And one we enjoyed recently was called 127 Hours. And it's a true story of adventurer Aaron Ralston. He was climbing alone in the remote Blue John Canyon in the state of Utah in America. He was uh, climbing when a massive boulder moved and pinned him to the rock face by his arm. And the film is called 127 Hours because he was pinned there to the rock face for six days, waiting for help to come, eking out his little bottle of water, trying every conceivable way to free himself, remembering with regret that he had not told anybody where he was going. There was no chance that anyone was going to find him down this canyon, and so after six days, he made the desperate decision to free himself. He broke two bones in his arm, and then slowly, deliberately, methodically, he cut through the flesh of his arm with a blunt penknife until his arm was severed and he was free. He then somehow managed to abseil down, bleeding, starving, dehydrated, only just alive, somehow ran several miles for help and survived to tell the tale. It's a true story, and Aaron Ralston, with his one arm, now goes around giving motivational speeches as a career. Now just imagine if at one of those speeches, one of those events, some cocky young rock climber comes up to him and says, you know, you know the, there is this maneuver you can do to move that, that rock. You know, if you'd just done this kind of maneuver, you would have been able to be free and easily freed yourself and saved your arm. Well, how would Aaron Ralston feel about that? probably punch him with his one arm that he's got, wouldn't he? Because he knows that simply cannot be true. 
how does he know? Because for six days, he was trying every conceivable way to free himself. Do you really think a man would cut off his arm with a blunt penknife if there were any other way of being free? And that's how we must look at the cross of Christ. The awful agony of crucifixion that Jesus bore in himself as he took upon himself the wrath of God. We look at that and it's then that we realize that there was no other way. That our debt was so enormous that it took the infinite son of God to bear it himself for us. So two things we've learned from this parable so far. At its heart, forgiveness is the costly cancelling of a debt. The second thing is that for us to enter the kingdom, that debt must be cancelled, and it has been only in the cross of Christ. But there's one more thing we learn from this parable, and I guess this is where it comes to the crunch in answer to Peter's question. It is outrageous for those who've been forgiven like that not to forgive others. Because you'll notice that the story goes on into the second half, and having reached this very happy note, it concludes on a dark note. Verse 28, when that servant found out, he went to one of his fellow servants that owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. It's important to notice that the first servant, as well as being a debtor, is himself someone who has others in his debt. There are those who owe him money. Or to go back to Peter's question, there are those who have sinned against him. And Jesus tells a story to shock us and outrage us at his behavior against the one who has sinned him. As those onlookers are in verse 31. Notice how Jesus builds this sense of outrage by using identical language in the way the two servants are spoken of. Verse 29, he promises to pay him back. He begs, he falls to his knees, same as the first servant. But now we see how different this servant is to the one who forgave him, verse 30. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the king finds out he is outraged too and reverses his decision, verse 32 to 34, but it's not only the king and the onlookers who are outraged. The real twist and shock of the story is that Jesus now explicitly identifies the king in his anger with his heavenly father. Verse 35, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. And so that's the third thing we learn from this parable. That those who have received such extravagant mercy, it is outrageous to be unforgiving towards other. And such treatment will result in God's own retributive justice at the end. And so it really matters, doesn't it? It really matters that you can be somebody who can forgive. Because this is the evidence that you are somebody who has been forgiven through the cross of Christ. 
Jesus' people forgive because they have been forgiven. Well, let's conclude by returning to my claim at the start that Christianity is not only true, but good. That it brings something beautiful, good, and original into the world, and that something is forgiveness. The forgiveness from God that Jesus has achieved on the cross. Forgiveness that is our task to proclaim to the world, and forgiveness that we can now offer to those who sin against us. Which means that one very practical outcome of this morning has got to be your willingness to forgive others. Maybe some in this room. Maybe someone close to you. One practical outcome is your willingness to forgive them. Now, of course, none of this means that that will be easy. I think for years I read this parable and I thought the hundred denarii was a, was a trivial amount, just loose change. But actually, we've learned, haven't we, that a hundred denarii that the second servant owes is owes is a hundred days' labor, a third of a year's income. That is real pain, isn't it? That's a real wrong. That is not easy to absorb. And so in practice, forgiveness can be a long and difficult journey. And there might be times when the betrayal and abuse and the harm done is so deep that forgiveness can happen, but perhaps reconciliation cannot happen, particularly if the wrongdoer doesn't repent. Forgiveness might not be possible, but that does not mean that reconciliation has to be possible, I think. Neither does this mean that you become a doormat if you become a Christian. And sin just doesn't matter. Now, we saw last week, didn't we, that there is a time for exposure. There is a time for correction of ungodly behavior. There is a time for accountability. It's also important to say that Jesus' teaching here and his insistence in Matthew 5 that we turn the other cheek does not mean that anybody should endure situations of violence or abuse. And it's certainly never the case that someone should turn to the person they have hurt and insist on being forgiven. That's not how it works. But having made all of those important caveats, the big point still stands. That our willingness to forgive others is evidence that we have grasped the enormity of God's forgiveness to us. Not being able to forgive the hundred denario shows that you've not grasped the 10,000 talents that God has forgiven you. And when you properly understand the weight of debt on your shoulders and the fact that it was exhausted by Jesus on the cross, you are freed from the kingdom of Lamech to live in the kingdom of extravagant grace and live by its standards. You know that no matter how much you have been wronged, your debt against God is thousands of times greater. Or to put it this way, nothing you can do to me is worse than what I have done to God. And I know for some people in this room that's going to take a little bit of digesting. But nothing that you can do to me is worse than what I have done to God. So one practical result of this sermon might be that you need to go and speak to somebody. 
put things right, hold out the olive branch. For their sake, of course, for the good of the church, but ultimately for your sake, for the assurance that you need that you yourself have grasped the enormity of God's forgiveness of you. Remember Corrie Ten Boom? We left her standing there, didn't we? Well, let me conclude her story. She's facing the Nazi guard who has his hand stretched out, the guard who killed her sister. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this feeling of warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands. The former Nazi guard and the former prisoner. I'd never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But for some of us this morning, there might be something even more important that you need to do and that you need to receive the forgiveness of God. It might be as you've been listening to this this morning, you've come to realize that you yourself have not yet had that burden of debt removed by trusting the cross of Christ. So you'll see at the bottom of the sheet a prayer, which I'm going to pray which will be a great prayer to echo in your heart for anyone who has that weight of sin and wants it removed. Let's have a moment of quiet and then I'll lead us in that prayer. So do join me as I pray silently in your own heart to receive God's forgiveness. Heavenly Father, thank you for showing me that I do not deserve to enter your kingdom, but need your mercy. Thank you that Jesus fully paid the enormous debt of my sin when he died on the cross. Please forgive me and cleanse me so I might live with Jesus as my king from now on, forgiving others as I have been forgiven. Amen.